You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the greater Pittsburgh metropolitan area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. I invite you to return to John's Gospel, Chapter 5. We are going to pick up where we left off last time, which will be verse 31. I'm going to read down through verse 40 this morning. We're working our way through, I think, probably one of the most difficult sections in John's entire gospel. I think this is probably it. I haven't finished yet. I'll get back to you on that. But um, John 5, verse 31. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not deemed true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth, not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John, for the works that The Father has given me to accomplish the very works that I am doing. Bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. The Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me, that you may have life. Heavenly Father, Lord, if we are to benefit from your word this morning in any kind of way, Father, we require your grace. We require your working in our hearts. Father, human beings are capable of giving talks and People may even find the talk interesting. Oh, Father, it'll just be that. It'll only be a talk. Oh, Father, as you accompany your word by way of your Holy Spirit, well, then it's it's eternal. And the change is profound. And the glory is given to you. Oh, Father, we pray that you would do exactly that here in this hour that we gather here, Father, for that very purpose that we would hear your voice speaking to us through your word. Speak to us, O oh Father, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as we've been studying this section, verses 19 and following, I've said on a number of occasions that we have to keep verses 16, 17, and 18 bouncing around in our, our minds. Actually, we have to kind of, if we want to use computer terminology. We want to keep that program running uh, while we um, make our way through verses 19 uh, through 47, because verses 19 through 47 are a response. They're Christ's response uh, to the charges that are given in verse 18. And verses 16 and 17 uh, actually take us uh, to verse 18. In verse 16, we learn that the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things uh, on the Sabbath. What things? 
Well, acts of mercy, one example of which would be the healing of this man who was invalid for 38 years, who was laying beside the pool at Bethesda. So because Jesus was doing these acts of mercy, his opponents began to persecute him as a Sabbath breaker. Now, as I've said on a number of occasions, uh, Jesus wasn't breaking any Sabbath laws that are expressed in Scripture. The laws that Jesus was breaking were the laws that men had come along and added to those laws that are set forth in Scripture. And we can have some sympathy for that because uh, the rabbis over the years had rightly read in the fourth commandment that you shall do no work on the Sabbath day. Six days you shall labor. The Sabbath days to be kept holy shall do no work on that day. Well, they got around and they uh, began to uh, discuss what constitutes work. How do we define work? And it's a, it's a classic example where the plain things cease to be the main things and all kinds of other things are brought in uh, to the clear. I think the clearest teaching there is if you're a mechanic, knock it off on, on the Sabbath. Don't take in any work that day and uh, observe the day as a rest. If you're a carpenter, uh, don't frame up a house. Uh, if you're a plumber, uh, don't, don't install any pipes. Uh, is certainly what is meant there. Uh, but they come up with a number of different categories uh, of work, if you will. Scholars tell us there was about 39 categories at all, and they had constituted all of these various examples of how you could break the Sabbath on Sunday and render the day, or on the Sabbath rather, and you could render the day practically unbearable. And it was these laws that Jesus was violating as he was uh, doing these various acts of, of mercy. And this really underlies the brilliance of what Jesus says in verse 17. He says, my father is working until now, and I am working. What is Jesus saying? He says, well, this is true. Genesis 2 teaches us quite clearly that the father, has, the father ceased from his creative activity on the seventh day, uh, but he doesn't cease from working. He doesn't cease from operating. He has a universe to uphold. He has a universe to govern providentially. And that is the work that the Father has been doing ever since. And Jesus is saying that he is involved in this work, which indeed is making himself equal with the Father, isn't it? And that brings us to verse 18. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. They were seeking to kill him. This early in John, they're already seeking to destroy him. Not only was he a Sabbath breaker, but he was also a blasphemer because he was making God his own father and making himself out to be equal with God. These are the charges that Jesus is responding to. And we have to keep this in mind as we go through verses 19 through 47. And if you just look at it by sheer volume of the material we have, you'll see we have more material devoted to Jesus' response uh, than we do before his response in this great chapter, don't we? And that is telling us something right there. But Jesus responds in verse 19. He says to them, truly, truly, I say to you. Notice that phrase. Truly, truly, I say to you. Uh, we're going to see that a couple more times as we go through here. What Jesus is saying with that phrase, 
is he's saying, listen, this is certain. There can be no more certainty than what I'm about to say. Truly, truly, I say to you. In other words, this is, this is of utmost certainty. You can count on this. He says, the son can do nothing of his own accord. I've made comments on this over the last two weeks. What Jesus is saying here is he's not on a solo project. He's not operating rogue from the Father or from the Holy Spirit, but that he is in this way that's mysterious to us. We, we can't really understand it fully, but in this way, the Son is so unified with the Father that everything that the Son is doing is exactly what the Father is doing. And that really speaks to the first accusation, doesn't it? Where they're saying you're a Sabbath breaker because you do these things on the Sabbath day. And what Jesus is responding is saying, listen, everything I do, I see the Father doing. I only do what I see the Father doing. What the Father does, I do as well. My Father's working until now, and I am working. In other words, what he is telling them is, these works you see me doing, they're the exact same works the Father is doing. Would anybody be prepared to accuse him of being a Sabbath breaker? It's a very powerful argument. Very powerful argument. And last week we were taking an additional look at this fact that Jesus can see. The Son only does what He sees the Father doing. You see that in verse 19. You see, that, that ties in with verse 17. My Father is working until now, and I am working. And the Son can only do what He sees the Father doing. And we looked at that last week. This actually is so comforting. Meditating on this, especially in the hour that we're in right now, with everything that's going on right now, is that what Jesus is seeing here is he can see providentially what the Father is seeking to accomplish in every event that takes place in history. So Jesus can go into uh, this pool, by this pool of Bethesda, and he can heal this invalid knowing exactly what the Father intends to do with this healing. Whereas we would look at this and we would be inclined to say this is just an act of mercy, and the whole object of this act of mercy is to relieve suffering. That's the conclusion we'd come to, isn't it? But Jesus can see what the Father is doing. Jesus realizes that there's more to it than that. In fact, the, gr the grand purpose of this, as I've already said, is to reveal heartless, lifeless, Christless religion. It's to reveal the fact that there are many people who are just showing up on Sunday going through the motions whose hearts are somewhere else, whose lives are not attached to Jesus Christ in any way, whose hearts are tied to money and careers and everything but Christ. They're standing up, they're sitting down, they're singing, they're going through the motions, but their hearts are not connected in any way to Christ. That is what's being revealed here. And we see it was common then, and it's common today. But the point is that Jesus can see what the Father is doing. He can see what the Father is up to. We can make some general uh, observations about what God might be doing right now in the midst of, of this coronavirus, which we're all tired of hearing about. I mean, we can make some general observations about the division that's in our land right now. One is God's hand of judgment upon us. I don't see how it can't be. But the nitty-gritty, the exact details of what God is doing, we can't see it, can we? 
We, historians may be able to see it as they look back, but we can't see it as we're going through it. What Jesus is saying is he can see all that the Father's doing. He sees exactly what the Father is up to, and he is in union with what the Father's up to. He is completely on board and in concert with what the Father is up to. He says in verse 20, For the Father loves the Son and shows Him all that He Himself is doing, and greater works than these will He show Him, that you may marvel. Then in verse 21, He says, As the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom He will. Here Jesus is making, again, Jesus is responding to verse 18. we got to keep that in mind. They're saying you're a blasphemer. You're making yourself equal to God. What has Jesus said so far? Yes, I am equal with God. I'll tell you how I'm equal with God. I can see everything he's doing. And I can do everything he does. For whatever the Father does, the Son does as well. <laughs> this is a claim. To, what, what's Jesus doing here? He's looking at these opponents who want to kill him, and he's saying, you're 100% correct. I am making myself out to be equal with God. You're wrong on the charge of blasphemy. It would be blasphemy if I wasn't equal with God. But I'm going to show you how I am equal with God. I'm equal with God this way. In me is life, just like in the Father is life. In me is life. In verse 22, the Father judges no one. He's given all judgment to the Son. See, these are prerogatives that belong only to God. Only God could say this, but Jesus is God in the flesh, so therefore he can say this. All judgment is mine. But then look at, look at verse 23. This one has to be, I mean, he says, he says in verse 22, the Father judges no one, but has given ju all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Try to look at this scene right now. Here his accusers want to kill him. Here Jesus is before them in his uh, rabbinical clothes, in his sandals, with dust on his feet, right before them, who appears to them to be nothing other than a man. And he says, listen, just as you honor the Father, you are to honor me. What is Jesus saying? He's saying nothing short of, just as you worship the Father, you are to worship me. What a statement. And in fact, not to worship the Son in the same way that we would worship the, fa the Father is to dishonor the Father, isn't it? And then lastly, in verse 24 and following, he makes a claim to being the Savior. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. What is Jesus saying there? He's saying the same thing that Paul says in Romans 10. Faith comes from hearing and hearing the word of Christ, doesn't it? Same, same. He's saying he's the Messiah. He's saying he's Christ. He's saying the Savior. He's saying these words that are coming forth from my mouth are so true. In fact, notice what he says in verse 25. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here. He says it in verse, verse 24 too. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me. He says it in verse 19. Truly, truly, I say to you. You see that? He's saying, listen, this is certain. It's as certain as it can possibly be. An hour is coming when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Verse 24, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. <laughs> you know, if we compare these verses to what Jesus says to Satan in, in uh, Luke 4, if you will, 
where he says that man does not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Here Jesus is saying the same thing about himself, isn't he? Think that through and look at verse 24 and 25. Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. Verse 25, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Last week, I pointed out that verse 25 speaks of conversion. What's the difference between a believer and an unbeliever? Well, in this respect, the difference is the believer's eyes have been opened. The believer's heart has been opened. The believer hears the voice. Jesus is going to tease this out further when he gets to John 10 when he says, my sheep hear my voice. He's going to be teasing this out. He's going to be developing this further in that great passage. That's the difference. One person hears it and it just goes off them like water off the back of a duck. Another person hears them and they're truly life-changing and life-transforming. And what is the difference? Is the second person better than the first person? No. The difference is all in, it's all in God. The heart has to be opened. That's why we pray the way we do. Lord, open hearts. Lord, open the hearts of our family members. Lord, open the hearts of, our, of, of people we're here in this community, uh, you know, working with and working beside and living beside and, uh, you know, trying to get along beside. Open their hearts. Open their minds. Do for them what you've done for us. You see, there's no room for us to glory. There is there. All the glory is His. It always will be. And the, the beautiful thing is that God answers prayer. He will answer our prayers. He will save people. He will. Let's just keep praying. In His time. He'll bring people to faith. He always has. He always will. And He always does. Now, Jesus uh, continues with just a couple more words here by way of introduction. Um, it's a really long introduction. Um, in verse 26, he says that the Father has life in himself, so he's also granted the Son to have life in himself. He's also granted his authority to execute judgment. Jesus is speaking to what he's already mentioned. Verse 28, do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Maybe that's why I've been praying the way I've been praying lately is because I've been, I've been focusing on these words. You see, that in the future, there's going to be a final judgment. And Jesus is the judge, and he will return. And he is going to judge us according to our thoughts, our words, and our deeds. Jesus is not here saying that we get saved based on our thoughts, words, and deeds. Well, none of us could be saved. We would all be damned. How are we saved? Anybody. Grace through faith. Abraham believed and it was credited to him as righteousness, right? Through our faith, we're brought into union with Christ. And then our sin is given to him, which he takes. He takes that sin debt upon himself on the cross. And his perfect righteousness is given to us. Without faith, there's no union. Without faith, we are not connected, just as these lights are not connected to the power company without the wiring. See, without faith, we have no wiring. But faith wires us up to heaven. It wires us up. Faith doesn't save us. It is Christ who saves us. But faith connects us to Christ, brings us into union with Christ where we are saved. 
Jesus says in verse 30 what He's been saying all along. I can do nothing on My own. As I, he- as I hear, I judge, and My judgment is just because I seek not My own will, but the will of Him who sent Me. Now, these are big claims that Jesus has made, aren't they? Now, the very next thing that Jesus does is He brings in witnesses. That's how we're to understand the verses that come from verse 31 to verse 40, which we take now. Now there's witnesses. Notice what He says in verse 31. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not deemed true. You see how He's bringing forth this idea of witness and testimony. Now, we need to be careful with verse 31. The old preachers and even the ancient preachers uh, warned, be very careful with verse 31. Why do we have to be very careful with verse 31? Let's think about verse 31 for a moment. Let's think about it. What is Jesus saying? If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not deemed true. If Jesus is equal with God, if He is God, if He is equal with the Father, if He is God in the flesh, and He speaks and says something, does His Word need witnesses to uh, uh, prove his, his, the, the truthhood of what He is saying? The answer is no. This is why we've got to be very careful with this verse. And in fact, let me show you something. If we just look ahead just to one verse, if you go to chapter 8 and verse 14, Jesus makes this really clear. That's not what He is saying. Because there in John 8, 14, He says, even if I do bear witness about Myself, My testimony is what? It's true. Now what angel, or what saint, or what human being for that matter, could add credence to the Word of God? There's none. But nevertheless, notice what Jesus says in verse 31. He says, if I alone bear witness about myself, my, my testimony is not true. What in the world is he saying then? This is beautiful. What is Jesus doing? Before people who want to kill him, he is condescending in love in order to speak to them in a way that they're going to understand. He seems to be appealing to Deuteronomy 17. And if you keep your place in John 5, I think it would be beneficial for us to turn there. Deuteronomy 17 The beginning of the chapter, let's start reading with verse 2. If there's found among you within any of your towns that the Lord your God is giving you, a man or a woman who does what is evil in the sight of the Lord and your, your God in transgressing His covenant and has gone and served other gods and worshiped them, or the sun, or the moon, or any of the host of heaven which I have forbidden, and it is told you, and you hear of it, then you shall inquire diligently. And if it is true and certain that such an abomination has been done in Israel, then you shall bring out to your gates that man or woman who has done this evil thing, and you shall stone that man or woman to death with stones. Now look at verse 6. On the evidence of two witnesses, or of three witnesses, the one who is to die shall be put to death, a person shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. Now, this is a prescription given by God through Moses for human courts, which are conducted by fallen human beings. So we have fallen witnesses, 
We have fallen people. We have fallen uh, counsel, that is attorneys. We have fallen juries. We have fallen judges. But because of this, uh, nobody is to be executed on the testimony of one voice. It's too, it's too, in fact, for that matter, no one is to be tried on the, on the testimony of one voice. You must have two or three witnesses. So what did Jesus seems to be making an appeal to that? And that's, if we go back to John chapter 5, Jesus is appealing to the Old Testament law, which they're familiar with, and to the court system. And he says, if I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not deemed true. Okay. Verse 32, there's another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. And this is where it gets a little difficult. Who is the one that Jesus is talking about? Now, some people would say it's John the Baptist because John the Baptist appears in verse 33. He's right there in the context. You sent to John and he has borne witness to the truth. But I don't think that's the right answer, and I'll tell you why. If you look at verse 34, he says, not that the testimony that I receive is from man. Now, I think there's a better answer, and that answer is the Father. It is the Father who bears testimony. You're wanting a witness. I'll give you a witness. The Father bears witness. What an incredible statement that is. Now, uh, here's what's interesting is what Jesus is presenting to us here is that the Father is a witness to Christ Jesus and that the Father is bearing witness actually in three ways. The Father bears witness through the ministry of John the Baptist. He bears witness through the works of Christ Jesus. And He bears witness through the Scriptures. I think that's the way we understand that. I mean, we could, we could look at it another way. And in my notes, I, I have written down there are four witnesses. There's the Father. There's John the Baptist. There is the works that Jesus does, and there are the Scriptures. But I think it's better for us. We could say there's four witnesses, but I think it's better for us to say the Father is witnessing. He bears testimony to Jesus, and He does it in three ways through John the Baptist, through the works and miracles of Christ, and by way of the Scriptures. Let me, let's see, you see what you think as this falls out and see if you don't think that's a better way of looking at this. In verse 33, Jesus appeals to John. He says, you sent to John and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. You see what he's up to here is the same thing that, that the Father was up to with John the Baptist. Why has John the Baptist been sent? A couple of minutes, we'll be reminded of why. So that people will come to salvation. He's reaching down to us. He's reaching down to us in mercy. He's reaching down to us uh, so that we will come to believe. It's a very great act of mercy. In the midst of our rebellion, in the midst of our sin, in the midst of our kicking against Him, He is reaching down to us in this incredible grace so that we might be saved. That's what's going on here. Even as they want to pick up stones and they want to, and they want to stone Him right there on the spot, He is reaching down to them so that they might be saved. In verse 35, he says he was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. Well, take a look. Go, go back to John 1. 
where John the Baptist is introduced. We see there there was a man sent from God whose name was John in verse 6, John 1, 6. You see, now who are we to understand is anteceding God here? It's the Father. There is one who is sent from the Father whose name is John. So you see, it's the Father who sends John to be witness to the truth. He came, verse 7, as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. How did he get here? He was sent from God. Who exactly sent him? The Father sent him. That's why I think that the Father is bearing witness three ways. One, through John the Baptist. It's the Father who sends John the Baptist. You'll recall John the Baptist is miraculously born to his mom Elizabeth in her older years when she had been barren for all those years. Starting to sound a little bit like Christmas time, huh? It's one of those stories sometimes we look at during Advent. Well, we're not far away from Advent in God's providence. Verse 9, the true light which enlightens everyone was coming to the world. He was in the world. The world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. If you look down to verse 15, John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. What is John saying there? John is six months older than Jesus. Yet he is saying Jesus ranks before him. What is he saying? He is saying that Jesus is eternal, is what he is saying. Verse 19, and this is the testimony of John, when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed, I'm not the Christ. They said, are you Elijah? He said, no. Are you the prophet? He said, no. Then they said, listen, we got to get back to those who sent us. Tell us. What do you say about yourself? Verse 23, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Here the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit prophesying through Isaiah 700 years earlier in that great chapter, chapter 40. You know, if you've ever read Isaiah, you read, you got judgment after judgment after judgment. Judgment on Babylon, judgment on Assyria, judgment on Egypt, judgment on Edom, judgment on Jerusalem, judgment on Israel, judgment, 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 judgment. And then finally you come to chapter 40, and it's like just from heaven, comfort, comfort my people. Comfort my people. It's like Isaiah says, I hear one crying in the wilderness. Uh, a voice says, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight his path. Every valley shall be lifted and every mountain brought low. We also have prophecy from Malachi to that effect, don't we? And there are other places. Here, very clearly, John is the one who has been sent by the Father. For what reason? For what reason to bear witness to Christ. Verse 29, he saw Jesus coming toward him and he said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And again in verse 36, he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, behold, the Lamb of God takes away sin of the world. This is what Jesus is referring to. This is the summary of the ministry of John the Baptist. Jesus says he was a burning and shining lamp. That's such an interesting such an interesting metaphor, figurative language there, if you will, uh, because oftentimes the prophets are referred to this way, as a lamp. You know, an ancient lamp has oil in it, and it only burns for a period of time, doesn't it? And such were the prophets. They came, and they, they had that light for a period of time, and then, and then, and then, it, it, then it vanishes, doesn't it? That's the difference between the prophet 
and the Lord. That's the difference between the one who says, I am not the light, but I come bearing witness to the light. The true light, which lightens every man, is coming into the world. Christ is the light. John was a prophet who bore witness to the light. So the Father is bearing testimony to the truthhood of Jesus, and he's doing it through John the Baptist, the ministry of John the Baptist. Then in verse 36, John chapter 5, verse 36, Jesus says, the testimony that I have is greater than that of John, for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I'm doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. First thing I want to point out about this is notice Jesus seems to be starting with the lesser and working his way to the greater. Because he starts with John the Baptist, a great testimony to the truth of Christ. But then he says, greater works are these that I have, the works that the Father has given me. What works would they be? The works he's being accused of Sabbath-breaking with. You see, it's why we got to keep 16, 17, and 18 in our minds. You're a Sabbath-breaker, and you're making yourself out to be equal to God. Listen, can any of you just walk into the pool of Bethesda and pick any invalid that's been there for 38 years and say, get up, pick up your mat, and walk? Is that a common, ordinary thing to do? These works testify. These works bear witness. You see, we have these miracles that are all through the Scriptures that bear witness to the truth of what Jesus is teaching and saying. Nobody discounts that these miracles didn't happen. At one point, they say, well, you're only able to do this because you have a demon. That was the best they could come up with. It must be demonic power that you're doing this by. But they never discount that he was doing it, do they? They knew he was doing it. They knew this man laid there for, was invalid for 38 years because they had given him money. That's how, they, that's, how he, that's how he was supported. And now he's walking around carrying his mat. They bear witness to Jesus. And I think we ought to add not just the miracles, but I think the teaching, I think every, every capacity. Jesus says all that he, he does what he sees the Father doing. Everything that Jesus does is the work of the Father, isn't it? So I would say in his teaching, his teaching bears witness that the Father is bearing witness to Jesus even through his teaching because what was the testimony there? People said he, they marveled at his teaching because he didn't teach as those who, uh, didn't te- he taught as one who had authority, not as the scribes and the others. So I think we could add his teaching. We could add his compassion. We could add uh, uh, everything about his, his ministry. But then in verse 37, Jesus says, the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you've never heard, his form you've never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures, verse 39, because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. There is the third thing. The Father is witnessing to, to the Son by way of the scriptures. He's doing it through John the Baptist. He's doing it through the works, the miracles, the teaching, every aspect of Christ's ministry, all of his works. But he's doing it through the Scriptures. And I, 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 I think we have here a lesser to greater argument. I think John the Baptist is a powerful argument. They flocked out to him. They flocked out to him. He had a, a, a massive ministry for a season. 
Their faith was fickle. They, they disbanded. It faded away. But then you have the miracles. Now many are flocking to Christ in these miracles. That was also fickle as well. And we're going to get to that in John 6. But then we have the Scriptures. And Jesus says, you search the Scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. That's verse 39. What are we to make of that? Well, we think about it. These, the people that Jesus are talking to are not people that didn't read their Bibles. They read their Bibles. They knew their Bibles. They memorized their Bibles. They knew their Bibles really, really well. But they missed the whole point of the Bible. They missed the whole point. We're always in danger of that. You see, we can fall in love with things like theology, or we can fall in love with being right and proving that other people are wrong. There's all kinds of things that we can do uh, that would lead us to study the Scriptures and know the Scriptures really well. But what Jesus is making clear here is that the Scriptures bear witness to Him. The central function... See, Jesus is teaching us how to study and read our Bibles right now. How do we study and read our Bibles? We study and read our Bibles realizing that the Bible speaks about Jesus, that all of this is about Jesus, that all of this finds its way of bearing witness and testimony about Him. He is the central figure of every story. That keeps us from falling to pray like so many do, of coming to these stories and, and making the stories about the characters that are in the stories. How often does that happen? See, you're not understanding your Bible correctly if you're doing that. Oh, look at, look at Daniel. Daniel's a great leader, and uh, let's go and be like Daniel. Or such and such. Look how such and such. Look at David. Look at, look at, uh, you know, look at all of these characters. Look at, look at the Apostle John. Look at John the Baptist. Go be like John the Baptist. That's missing the point. The whole point about this is Jesus. If we want to be like David, if we want to be like Paul, if we want to be like all these saints of Rome, we're going to have to be we're going to have to be enthralled with Jesus. And by the way, he is the point. He is the center. He takes center stage of every story we come to, of every narrative we come to. That's why if I stand up here and I speak for 45 minutes or 50 minutes and I fail to bring you to Jesus, I have wasted 45 or 50 minutes of your time. Because this should take us to Jesus. And what's on the table right now? What's on the dock right now? There are two charges, Sabbath breaker and blasphemer. Is he guilty or is he innocent? He's innocent of being a Sabbath breaker. He's innocent of being a, uh, a blasphemer. But he is certainly, certainly making himself out to be equal with God, isn't he? That's what we're to see from this passage. That's what John is showing us from this passage. And it's not just making a claim that he's, out, that he's equal with God. It's not just a claim, but he's showing us how he is equal with God. He can see everything God is doing. He can see everything the Father is doing. He does everything that the Father does. In him is life. He has been given judgment. He is the Messiah, the Savior. In fact, he doesn't do anything. He only does what he sees the Father doing. And... The Father bears witness to everything that He is saying through John the Baptist, through the works and miracles that Jesus is doing, and through the Scriptures. One final comment. Let's comment on the Scriptures. As I've said a couple of times, it's an argument, I think, from lesser to greater. Doesn't it seem to be that way? And what's the last argument? It's the Scriptures. 
Why do we do what we do on Sunday? Why do we do what we do? Why are we racking our brains to try to figure out what all of this means? Why do we do that every Sunday? Because this is the only place where we can learn about Jesus, isn't it? Where else are we going to learn about Jesus? Where else are we going to learn about the miracles that he did, which bear witness to him? Where else are we going to learn about the Father's testimony, which bears witness to him? Where else are we going to learn about John the Baptist's ministry, which bears witness to him? Where else are we going to learn that he is equal with God the Father? Where else are we going to learn how he is equal with God the Father? Now, we don't, we don't gather this information just so that we can fill our heads with more information. The whole idea is that we can see Jesus clearer and clearer and clearer. Who is Jesus? He is the very Son of God. He is very God of very God. In Him is life. He does all that He sees the Father doing, and He's able to do all that the Father does. In Him has been given judgment. He is going to return to judge at the end of, the, at the end of time. You see, we see all of these things from Scripture. Where do we learn all these things? There's only one place we can learn all these things. And that's why I don't get, you know, a, a couple of weeks ago, I was telling a few of you, a couple of weeks ago, I happened to be looking for something online, and I came across some sermon material. And I was watching this pastor, and I, I mean, I, I just couldn't get over what he was doing. See, I, I get... As a pastor, I get, with some of you, I get 50 minutes maybe a week with you to do what we're doing right now. And that's the case with every pastor. We're all busy. We scatter from here and we go about our lives, don't we? Now, some of us are able to come on Wednesday nights and we get maybe another 35 or 40 minutes to teach on the Word. But think about it in the grand scheme of what we go through. Is that a lot of time? 45, 50 minutes once a week, maybe twice a week? Am I going to stand up here and use those precious minutes making jokes and entertaining and just saying nonsense and just saying stuff that don't even mean anything? That would impoverish you. That would greatly impoverish you. You're not, I'll tell you what, you won't grow that way. In fact, you know what will happen is you'll go backwards that way. Sometimes it's all we can do just to stay where we are. We realize that if we've walked with Jesus for a while, don't we? Because you go through seasons where you're really excited about Jesus. And you go through seasons where your excitement is a struggle. Am I right? And it's all you can do through those seasons, so it seems, is just to, just to stay where you are. And when you're in one of those seasons, you need somebody to share the Word with you. Not somebody to stand up here and be buddies with you. I love being buddies with all of you. I love you all very dearly. I mean, as we were singing this morning, I'm kind of glad I had the mask on. I could pull it up because it almost brings tears to my eyes to see all of you here gathered. And to stand here and to waste your time, it should bring tears to our eyes that that's happening right now as I speak in congregations all over the place. And unfortunately, those are often the places where the most cars are parked. 
And the application I want to make of that is simple. We need to pray that those pulpits will either be converted or they'll be minimalized. Because we need a steady diet of God's Word, don't we? Why do pastors do that? One of the reasons is they're lazy. This is hard work. It's really hard work. I remember being at a pastor's conference a number of years ago. There were about 600 pastors up at Parkside. And Alistair Begg got up and he couldn't believe what he said. He got up and looked at all of us who were sitting there and he looked at all of us and this is what he said. He said, most of you are lazy. Or perhaps maybe a, a majority of you are lazy. Or perhaps maybe there's just some lazy people among you. Nobody follows you around to see what you do all day. There's very little accountability, and you can pretty much do whatever you want. If you're going to do what I just got done doing with John 5, I can tell you right now, you're going to be in your study and you're going to be on your knees. That's all there is to it, or else you're not going to be able to do that. And that is one of the chief and principal reasons why this isn't getting done. It'd be a lot easier up here just to rely, especially if I had one of those. I don't have one of those personalities. But if I had one of those personalities, it would be much easier just to stand up and just be the ham show for a couple, for a few minutes and call it a day. That's not going to edify you. We're not going to grow in that. But see, it's not enough just for me to get into the Word and do this. It also requires that we, and you guys know this, don't you? That's why some of you carry your Bibles to work. Sit on your lunch hour, you can open up your Bible and you can read. That's why some of you have these devotionals. That's why some of you are listening to these podcasts all the time. You realize it, don't you? But let's end on a good note. Are you growing? Just ask yourself this question right now. Are you growing in your faith? Now, what do I mean by that? Have you grown in your love and devotion for Christ Jesus? Have you grown in your surrender to Christ Jesus? Have you grown in your boldness for Him? I know the answer to that question because I'm watching it take place. And how does it take place? It takes place as God blesses His Word to our hearts, doesn't it? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we so thank You and praise You, Father, that you have given us such an exhaustive word. Father, there are many things, as Peter writes of the Apostle Paul, there are many things that are hard to understand. And we come in, in John 5 to some of those things. It's funny, Lord, as, as we've been wrestling with John 5, and, and Lord, I, I almost want to say with Peter, well, you know, um, Paul's not the only one that writes things that are hard to understand. Peter writes hard things to understand, and John writes hard things to understand. And Father, we ask for your blessing that you'll continue to bless us as we come to John's gospel. It's deceptively simple, and we've seen that it's far more profound than we can fathom and we can know. But Father, I pray that you'll continue to work in our lives and our hearts to create in us a thirst for your word. And Father, we do pray for these pulpits. So many people are being impoverished because the word is not being proclaimed because the word is not being preached. Well, Father, we do pray. We pray, Father, that, Lord, you'd be pleased, O Lord, to cause 
more, more exposition of your scriptures to take place here in this valley and elsewhere, Lord. We pray that more and more pulpits would be filled, O oh Father, with your word, teaching and proclaiming your word, doing the hard work of discovering what your word teaches and what the Holy Spirit desired to teach through this passage or that passage. And we pray that you would do this, Father, or you would minimize the influence of those places. Oh, Father, we pray that, Lord, your church would become a place that is a buttress of truth. It would become a place that is respected as a place of truth, as it has been in various seasons of, of church history. So, oh, Father, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.